This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. My name is Will. I'm the youth and college pastor here. And uh, forgive me if you've heard me tell this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. I can't remember the last time I used this illustration. Uh, so during my senior year of college, it was spring break, and my friends and I decided we wanted to go on a road trip. So we all piled into two cars, and we started heading for the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina. And, you know, so this is, this is in the days, you know, like, after when, like, we didn't use maps, but we used MapQuest. It was the worst of all possible scenarios, right? I won't get into that, but... So we neither had smartphones to know where we were going, nor did we have maps to know where we were going. We had MapQuest. It was awful. Um, but we decided we're going to stick together. So I'm following this silver car, and in somewhere in Indiana, we pull off, we get gas, and I finish pumping. I see the silver car pulling out, and so I follow them. And it should have just been an easy right turn to get back on the highway, but instead, my friend's car turned off too early, about 100 feet before the highway, and just started heading down this random, bumpy road in the middle of nowhere. And so the other thing we decided on this trip is that we weren't going to use our cell phones. We were going to use walkie-talkies to communicate. And so we've got our walkie-talkie, and we're like, hey, where are you guys going? And all we're getting back on the other line is, is, is just static. And, and they keep going further and further down this random road that's just leading to a dairy farm. And so we start you know, getting really belligerent, and we're like, you fools, what are you doing? You're in the middle of nowhere. Just turn around. It's so easy. There's nobody out here. And all we're getting back is static. And so I say, okay, I'm going to help them out. So I start honking my horn. I'm flashing my lights. I start tailing them. We're like, these what morons, what are they thinking? And then, as clear as day, came a voice through the static. Will, what are you doing? I'm like, what? What are you guys doing? You're following the wrong car. <laughs> what? Turn to your left. And I look over, and there on the highway is the silver car. <laughs> parked right there with my friends just waving at me. <laughs> You're following the wrong car. <laughs> Immediately turn around and just pray that we didn't give this poor farmer going out to his farm a heart attack. Well, on the second Sunday of Advent, the church reads the story, or the words, of a man named John the Baptist whose message could be summed up in one Greek word, metanoia, literally Turn around, or as we know it in English, repent. Repent, that was his message. And repentance is this very, you know, churchy-sounding word. You don't, you don't see repentance very much on Twitter. People aren't talking much about repentance in kind of broader culture, at least in those terms. You know, sometimes when folks think of the word repent, they think of somebody on a street corner with a big sign and says in big, bold letters, you know, repent exclamation point. But in the Bible, repentance is a beautiful word, and it's a beautiful concept. Repentance involves two things. First, an honest admission of wrong. It's taking responsibility for some wrong that you've committed. It's honesty, an honest appraisal of some wrong that you've done, and a willingness to change to turn around. It's a recognition, I was on the wrong road, 
I want to get back on the right road. And repentance is so important, you can't understand Jesus without it. In fact, you can't understand Jesus without practicing repentance. And that's why every gospel writer introduces the story of Jesus by talking about John. In our gospel written this morning, written by Mark, or our gospel this morning, written by Mark, wasn't written today, I want you to be clear about that. It says that John's message is nothing less than the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel in our lives is always repentance, turning around, even doing so, again and again and again. And so this morning, I want to focus on what I've called three rules of repentance, three distinctives of John's teaching, and here's what they are. Number one, repentance is about restoration. Repentance is about restoration. Number two, restoration requires desperation. And number three, there's no better time than now. Before we get too far, let's talk about John. Because John is this really interesting figure, but he's kind of like a, a flash in the pan in these stories. He's there, and then he's gone. He might come up maybe once or twice later in the story of Jesus. But he can just kind of be this, like, mysterious, odd figure to us. He has these, you know, odd clothing, you know, a cloak of camel's hair, a leather belt. He eats weird things. So what's going on with him? And John is... He's featured at the beginning of all four Gospels because what he's doing is he's tying together what God has done in the Old Testament with what God is about to do through Jesus. John the Baptist is the link between the promise and the fulfillment. And that's why in the Eastern Church, in Eastern Orthodoxy, they don't call him John the Baptist. They often call him John the Forerunner because his job wasn't just to get people wet, but it was to prepare the way for Jesus. And John had a huge impact. So even outside the Bible, there's a, a Jewish historian writing in 90 A.D., 60 years after John died. This Jew, Jewish historian named Josephus, and Josephus makes sure to include an entry about John the Baptist, about his ministry, about his death. We read about followers of John's in the book of Acts, but even today, there is a small religious sect in Iraq and Iran who claim to be followers of John the Baptist. Their name, they're the Mandeans. And some of these folks became refugees. They're even living in DuPage County. Jesus himself called John the greatest man to ever live. And that's how the church has understood him. So you think Michael Jordan is the goat? No. Tom Brady? No. It's John the Baptist. You tell that to your friends. In icons and in paintings, you'll often, you'll often see Jesus sitting on the throne, and he's flanked by two people. On his right is his mother Mary, and on his left is John the Baptist. Both of them have their, their hands outstretched, offering prayers to Jesus on behalf of humanity. John the Baptist wasn't just a prophet, but he was the greatest prophet because he most clearly points us to Jesus. And the way to Jesus, John tells us, is through repentance. So let's begin. Number one, repentance is about restoration. 
Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then immediately after, this quote from Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And this is actually a mashup between something Isaiah said in Isaiah 40 that we read this morning and another prophet, Malachi. But don't get tripped up by that. Mark's allowed to do that, okay? And these words are originally addressed to the Jews as they're living in exile. They're living far from home. They're suffering. They're experiencing the consequences of what they've done, the consequences of their sin. And isn't exile just such a good picture of what it feels like when you realize you've really messed up. Exile is what it feels like because we feel good when we're connected, you know, relationally with others, and when we're connected spiritually with God, and we're connected even internally. And when we do something that we're ashamed of, what we feel is division, a break, a separation. We feel exiled from home, disconnected. And it's into that feeling that Isaiah speaks this word of hope, a voice crying in the wilderness. The exile is over. The time of separation is over. God is going to build a bridge. He's coming to you. Make room for him. And the gospel writer Mark, he says this voice, it's not just a metaphor. It's, it's going to be a person. It's John the Baptist. So verse 4 John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The time of restoration is here. In John's time, this is hundreds of years after Isaiah spoke these words, the Jews had returned from their physical exile, but things still didn't feel right. The temple is full of hypocrisy. It's rebuilt, but it's not functioning in the way that it should. The true king isn't on the throne. Herod is this puppet king, and the Romans still control the land. And so John's message, in line with these prophets before him, isn't just to call the people back from a physical exile, physical separation, but a spiritual exile. And the way that, that he's doing this, the way that he's calling the people to prepare the way for the Lord, is through repentance. Repentance is difficult. It is, it is just a terrible feeling to face up to something that you're really ashamed of. Often it's, it's repenting over something that you've repented of over many, many times before, and that feeling of, oh, I'm here again, can just add to the shame. But in the Lord, repentance is not merely about being reminded of your mistakes. It is always about restoration. It's always about reconnection. When we repent, God forgives every time. When we repent, God forgives, and that's a promise. No matter what you've done, repentance is about restoration. Let's look at John's second rule. This one's a bit more complex. Complex. Restoration requires desperation. So notice there in the passage, this theme of the wilderness, 
that pops up a couple times. I mean, what's going on with that? It's intentional. In the Bible, the wilderness isn't just like a, a geographic place, like the north woods of Wisconsin. You know, that's, that's the wilderness. It is that, but it's primarily a spiritual location. It's a place of desperation and of need. The wilderness is uncultivated, right? There's very little food to eat out there. It's, it's uninhabited. You're far from community, from other people, from ordinary life. It's dangerous with real threats of lions and snakes and other animals. And this is where John goes. This is where Isaiah says the voice is going to come from. Why? Because for all of its desperate circumstances, there's more to the wilderness. It's also a place of romance. And when the prophets talk about the wilderness period after the Exodus, this 40 years, where the Hebrews, you know, journeyed to the promised land, the prophets don't just remember the difficulties. They don't just remember the people crying out, you know, have you brought us out here to die? They remember this time as a honeymoon, as a time when God brought his bride, Israel, out of captivity, and as the time where Israel learned to fall in love with the Lord. They remember the wilderness as a place of miraculous provision where time and time again the Lord demonstrated his affection for his people. And so John calls Israel to meet him out in the wilderness in order for her to renew her wedding vows, in order to return to this, this earlier love that she had for the Lord, back into the memories of this miraculous provision, back into the memory of being brought through the waters of the Jordan, back into this place of holy desperation where every need was provided for. Now John could have set up shop somewhere else. His dad, Zechariah, is a priest, and so John could have been a priest like him, in the temple. But John, like some other folks at the time, he sees hypocrisy there. He doesn't want anything to do with that. He sees people going through the religious motions, but where their hearts aren't in it. And so he leaves Jerusalem back to the wilderness, back to the beginning, in order to model for Israel physically. He's going to be the model for Israel physically, the thing that he's calling them to do spiritually, to go to this place of desperation. Look at verse 6. He wears these odd clothes, camel hair. And that's an allusion to Elijah. This is Elijah's garment, his vestments. John, he eats locusts and honey. And we think that's really gross. It's interesting that the Bible includes that fact. So why is he doing that? Well, there's not much to eat in the desert. And locusts, as gross as they are, are a good source of protein, and they happen to be the one insect that the Hebrews are allowed to eat. And then honey, because honey is amazing. We all know that. Okay, but notice this. Both of those things, locusts and honey, are naturally occurring. And so day by day, John, in this place of desperation, is waiting on the Lord, empty-handed, waiting on the Lord to provide. What the wilderness teaches is that the things that you and I most need are things we cannot provide ourselves. 
We have to receive them open-handed, empty-handed, as a gift. And in this case, not just food and water, but forgiveness, restoration, a release from guilt and shame. Repentance requires this. When we repent, we come with just two things, honesty about what we've done and a commitment to change. Anything added on to that is not true repentance. For instance, you can't be repentant and be defensive. Well, I'm sorry I said what I did, but she said this to me first, and so it makes sense. If that's where you are, you might be on your way to repentance, but you're not there yet. Which means that repentance requires some homework, some self-examination beforehand. You have to figure out what in this act, what in this moment, can I own as my responsibility, my fault, and nobody else's? Defensiveness, you have to leave that behind. You have to go to the place of desperation. A context that explains what you did and why you did it, excuses, those are important to talk through, to discuss, but at some point you have to leave them behind. True repentance is going to the wilderness in desperation, saying, God, I bring nothing but honesty and a desire to change. And when you come to God like that, you will meet him, and you will be restored. That is a promise. One final note, just to underline this point. I mean, you think about even just the picture of baptism. See, there were, there were other kind of like ritual washings that, that Jews practiced at the time of John. There was, you know, archaeologists all over Jerusalem will find these like big basins of water. And this is for like ritual cleansings from impurity that folks would do. There, there was a ritual where non-Jews could become Jewish through this immersive bath, you know, one-time immersive bath. But John's baptism is different than all of these in this one important respect. In John's baptism, in Christian baptism, we're always being baptized. And in these rituals, it was always self-administered. But in John's baptism, you can't baptize yourself. Christian baptism, you can't baptize yourself. What you need, you need to receive from somebody else. You can't do it for yourself. It's a gift. Restoration requires desperation. The bare minimum where the Lord gives you everything in return. And finally, John's third rule. There's no better time than now. Verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. The people are compelled. The message is not comfortable at all, and yet it is the very thing they were longing for, to be known for what they are, which is sinners, to be known for what they are, and to be cleansed. And don't you and I long for that too? Don't you just long for a clear conscience, a new beginning? He's calling the people out to the wilderness for that kind of new beginning. Notice the repetition of the word all 
in this verse. All Judea, all Jerusalem. The invitation was not just for people who had met this mark of like really bad, notorious sin. It was for everybody. We are all in this together. And John knew that the time was short. He knew that his ministry was provisional. Verse 7, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Basically, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest slave before this guy. And often in artistic representations, you'll see John, and he's doing this. He's pointing to Jesus. His whole ministry was, don't look at me, look to him. My preaching, my baptism, it is all just a, a forerunner. It is all just a taste of what is coming with him, with Jesus. John saw himself standing between these two kind of great epics of history, this time of, of suffering and promise and expectation on the one hand, and the time of fulfillment in Jesus on the other. Verse 8, I have baptized you with water, says John, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This would, have, this would have been interesting for a Jewish hearer because in their minds and in their scriptures, only God can dispense the Holy Spirit. Prophets like Joel, they talk about the end of days as this time when God pours out his Spirit upon everyone, and John sees that time coming. And what John sees and what the people can't yet see is that it's going to happen through the incarnation, through God taking on human flesh and offering himself as a sacrifice for sins so that all can be made clean by his blood, so that all can be given the Holy Spirit in baptism. There was urgency to John's message because Jesus was coming soon. And during Advent, we are right to feel that same urgency. The Lord is coming soon. This is what the readings last week reminded us. Stay awake. You don't know the day or the hour when you will meet the Lord. Stay awake. And the way we prepare ourselves to meet him is the same as it's always been by making room through repentance. There's no better time than now. Other voices, they will tell you otherwise. Temptation will say, no, don't repent, because you might want to go back to this sin. You're not done with it yet. Don't repent. That's what temptation will say. Pride will say, no, 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 wait on this. Wait on this, because you're not really at fault. It's really what they did to you. That's what you should focus on. Shame will tell you to wait. It'll say, hey, hey, you can pray, but do not tell anybody about this part of your life. Don't let anyone know that this is part of your past. And in fact, if that's you, I urge you, you must repent, not just to the Lord, but you must confess to somebody else. Because if you don't, that shame will cling to you and it will not let go. Shame, it thrives in dark and cold places. But when you shine light on it, it vanishes very quickly. Have you ever had this experience? You come clean to somebody else 
about something you've done, and it felt so big and weighty, and then as soon as you express the words and they say, I forgive you, or as soon as they say, God forgives you, you feel a light, a lightness that you didn't know was possible. It just vanishes. If you are suffering under the weight of shame, you must tell somebody. You must confess and be reminded of what's true, that you are forgiven. This Advent, let's hear the voice of Jesus in Mark chapter 2. Those who are well have no need of a doctor, only those who are sick. Jesus says, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Sinners like you and me. No matter what wrong turns you've taken, there is no better time than today to receive the gift of forgiveness and restoration through our Lord Jesus. It is a gift he is so ready to give. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.